Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the second full conference day at this very first Austrian Forum for Peace. In case you haven't met me yet, my name is Damita Pressel, and I have the honor of guiding you through the conference. Our second conference day is focused on the climate crisis, a very timely topic. As some of you may know, on Monday, we reached a new record in global temperatures, so it's as timely as ever. And climate change, conflict, and peace building are not separate topics, they're intertwined. Those countries and regions currently affected by conflict are also often those countries and regions least equipped to deal with the climate crisis, which presents a double challenge. Paradoxically, though, the climate crisis also holds the poten potential to encourage cooperation to solve a problem affecting everyone, thus potentially building trust between conflict parties. The president of the Republic of Austria would have loved to be here today for the keynote. Um, it's a topic very dear to his heart, but unfortunately, he could not. However, it is our pleasure to hand over to the executive director of the West Africa Network for peacebuilding, Chukwemeka Eze, for the keynote of today. Thank you very much. And um, let me start by making a confession, uh, which is uh, that I'm not expert in uh, climate change, and I'm also stepping in for somebody who ordinarily I don't think I match the shoes. But I'm also going to start on a very pessimistic note, which is that I believe that the global community and these actions against climate change is already behind schedule. The second note of pessimism is that migration is going to put a lot of pressure on not just infrastructure in the urban cities, but also going to increase crime rates, destroy planning of urban cities, and also destroy what you may call the environmental uh, architecture and put more pressure on the urban cities. Unfortunately, African elites are beginning to ask some basic questions that in my opinion might even derail the climate uh, actions. Those questions include, what about the countries engaged in emission, and why are Africans being asked to continue to plant trees as though Africa wants to turn itself into a forest? Now, some of those questions, while they may resonate in terms of balancing act, the issue then is that no actions may be taken in the near future. The existing normative frameworks, both at the continental level, the regional economic communities, and even national levels, don't seem to be fit for purpose at this moment to combat uh, climate uh, change issues. But there's also a big question now about the morality of the global peace architecture specifically the United Nations. Whether the Security Council, for example, still have the moral leverage to continue to take the global community out of some of these issues, especially when some, by their actions and inactions, are actually culprits 
to what we may consider to be bad behavior on the environment. The new contestation for spaces in Africa, the geopolitics at the moment, will even further complicate and compound issues around climate change. Especially that with regards to security, there seems no longer to be anyone in charge as far as support for Africa peace and security is concerned. Just last week, the UN pulled out of Mali unceremoniously. On the hand of the UN, they may be right because somebody needs to be in charge of peace and security in Mali. And yet, the government and some sections of Mali is asking the UN, what is your relevance in this region? And with that vacuum created, and with ECOWAS and African Union not equipped to deal with issues in Mali and by extension the entire Sahel region, then a vacuum is created to be filled by non-state actors and even those considered with bad interests. So what do we need to do? I think the first thing is that we must change our method of analysis of issues around climate, peace, and security. We must move beyond, for example, in the Sahel region, the pedestal analysis that assumed that everything got bad in the Sahel region post the fall of Gaddafi. I think that has become pedestal enough because something actually made that possible, which is the vulnerability of the Sahelian region, whether it is induced by climate change, bad governance, or other structural issues. So within that context, I think our analysis needs to move beyond this pedestal approach of the fall of Gaddafi to other fundamental issues. I also think that while these workshops and talk shows and conferences are important, I think the approach to climate action needs also be reviewed. To the extent that it can no longer be ad hoc in nature, it can no longer be induced by outcomes of workshops. There needs to be long-term planning. There needs to be deliberate effort. There needs to be dedicated, well-established envelopes to address some of these issues. But I also think that within the global community, we may need to begin to flip the questions, which is, for example, from this area of hopelessness that it seems how do we begin to deal with hope and give back hope to the people by developing some level of resistance and also the will to combat climate issues? And therefore, within that context, is to ask the question, in whose interest are we looking for this peace, stability, and change of behavior with regards to climate change? In that regard, I think there is need to see global action on climate change as not just assistance to a particular region, but also how the global community is dealing with an existential threat. West Africa, as you know, have continued to be the hot spot for climate-related security risks. Climate change is now a key driver of conflict in the Sahel, in the Lake Chad Basin, and in these regions, climate change has caused the depletion of resources, including water, land, food, fisheries, and biodiversity that support livelihoods of millions of population. 
This has compounded many of the local risk factors for conflict and violence. For example, the violent extremism question uh, around the Sahel is now moving towards the coastal communities of West Africa and thereby making it even difficult to now separate very well what you mean by zones of violent extremism. Example is how governance failures under development and ethnic stereotypes interact with climate change impacts, especially resources that is always scarce, to drive dispute between farmers and pastoralists. Again, if you look at the WANEP National Early Warning Systems record uh, as of 2002, we had 157 incidents of farmer header conflict alone and 153 fatalities, while 198 incidents with 105 fatalities were recorded in 2001 in Nigeria, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso alone. Between May and November 2022, the same system recorded 217 incidents of severe flood with 963 fatalities and displacement of about 1.6 million people, especially in Nigeria, Ghana, Niger, Mali, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. The forecast for this year is not even better. At least 2.5 million people, particularly women and children, were internally displaced in the central Sahel axis of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. Burkina Faso alone accounts for over 76% of the figures with 1.9 million IDPs and refugees. The humanitarian crisis in the North Nigeria remains one of the most severe in the region, with 2.1 million IDPs recorded just between January and December 2002 alone. Now, in October 2022, at least 600 people were killed in flood across Nigeria with 2.4 million people displaced from their communities. And of course, this continued to compound both issues in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria and also extending into other coastal communities, including Togo, Benin, and Ghana. Most of the internal displaced persons lived in schools, churches, and mosques, which were overstretched and, uh, of course, contacted uh, had no, little or no access to water, healthcare, and food. As it is, or it can be deduced from the statistics above, climate-induced conflict have disrupted livelihood, food systems, health, and traditional ways of life, as well as made communities even more vulnerable to violent extremism. Now, if you look at how we continue to talk about the utility of technology in responding to climate security risks. It's not just about technology, because we need to look at the gap that exists. While the developed countries are already talking about artificial intelligence, most of the states in this region are still grappling with basic internet connectivity. So as digitalization and access to data expands, there is an opportunity for technology tools to help break the climate conflict cycle as both a mitigation and adaptation measure. This will require deliberate effort to integrate advanced technologies with the conflict analysis and environmental science to lower the risk of climate-induced conflicts. So the question is, we have operated in peace and conflict circle for a very long time. 
Environmentalists have also operated in that environment or in that circle for a very long time. How do we begin to bring this together? And I think that I've seen a couple of that in this workshop, which I think is a, a good thing to happen. So new and emerging technologies enhance development practitioners' means of study and elucidate the separate and interwined issues of climate change and conflict. Institutionalizing and strengthening early warning systems to monitor climate trends and conflict, example, the ECOWAS early warning mechanism, the African reporter of the Continental Early Warning System of the African Union, the C1, with climate risk indicators to monitor climate and conflict trends. The use of geopartial technology for mapping climate risks in vulnerable communities to facilitate understanding of local risks is very important. Social media and crowdsourcing data can also help to democratize response to and monitoring of climate change risks. Utilizing of climate water vulnerability index system to monitor risk of drought and flood to inform early response is a very important aspect of our discussion. Of course, I did already mention the use of artificial intelligence tools to monitor climate trends and combat armed groups, organize crime, and uh, network. But in all this, there are also potential challenges and risks of technology. One of the biggest challenge is the high costs of developing and deploying new technologies, especially for these states in the region. There are concerns that many of the promising technologies are also limited to developed countries or are very expensive to install at the individual levels. For most developing countries with weak economies, the use of new technologies to address climate impact will require substantial national investment and support from development partners. There are also concerns that current technologies for addressing climate change are inadequate to induce a mass-scale positive environmental change and are also not being developed at a pace that is consistent with the need and demand of our time. The digital divide between rural and urban areas also has an impact on the ineffective use of technology to address climate-related risks. Rural areas continue to face digital inequality compared to urban areas that are often having access to advanced information communication technology. But we also need to look at the spoilers, uh, whether in criminal gang, rebel groups, or government agencies. This can also uh, leverage new technologies and information they provide to incite violence, promote conflict, and perpetuate crimes. And I think in this regard, there is also need for serious discussion between the demand and supply side, especially with regards to arms and ammunition. In this era of accepting authoritarian regimes as those we provide stability, they can also use information and communication technologies to prevent information from getting to one group in the society and identify members of a dissenting group as not, be, not being in their camp. So it also includes shutting down social media to curtail, to curtail dissenting views and voices, and we have seen that happen even in recent elections in Africa. Social media can also be a source of disinformation, misinformation, spread of propaganda, hate speech, ethnic bigotry, to increase tension and violence in communities. A few pathways forward. 
I think there is need for states, especially developing countries and development actors, to increase access to rural population to ICT, to bridge the digital divide, address climate data gap, and leverage it to engage communities in climate disaster, early warning information, and climate peace building education. Critical stakeholders need to enhance cybersecurity and address the shortfalls in artificial intelligence to enhance resilience, ensure effective data protection, and optimize potentials of technology in addressing climate-related security. I also think that it's time to begin to institutionalize and strengthen climate security and disaster risk early warning system at the local, national, and regional level to enhance effective response and mitigation of conflict and disaster risk in vulnerable communities and countries. As it is, no state in Africa, no, none of the hegemonies in Africa can single-handedly fund a peacekeeping mission. And that's why it is important that we begin to put more emphasis on prevention. And I believe that gatherings like this will provide us with a pathway to ensure that we begin these discussions. Thank you. Please feel free to take your seat on the panel. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Ezi, for sharing the West African perspective on today's topic with us. And our next panel, which aims to discuss the challenges at the intersection of climate change and conflict in the spirit of today, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce you to your host for this panel. She serves in the Department of Peace Operations at the United Nations, where she's the team leader for climate, peace, and security. Please welcome Annie Kinch. Thank you very much for this, for this opportunity and for all the familiar faces and friends uh, in the audience here today. Um, I do work for the United Nations, so I want to take advantage of uh, my role as um, moderator to just say a few uh, remarks as well about uh, some of the points that Mr. Aza also raised um, before we, we have the panelists take the stage today. Um, and I also want to take advantage um, of the discussion that we had yesterday, and I see um, here in the audience, Randa Slim, um, just bringing some of the points back uh, to also this panel. Of course, you mentioned uh, yesterday, Randa, the, the sort of entry points that climate change can bring to, to peace processes. Uh, so that's the main subject of our panel today. But I also think the issue of regionalization uh, is worth bringing up, um, and as well, just the very, very fundamental, serious uh, challenges to the collective security system that uh, Mr. Is is also raising here. And of course, the withdrawal of MINUSMA, we had the Security Council resolution on Friday, um, is a case in point in that regard in terms of the challenges that we are facing. I also appreciated from yesterday's panel um, this sort of positive uh, aspect um, that Severine in, in particular brought, you know, trying to f identify what actually works uh, rather than on only focusing on, on what doesn't work. Um, and for the United Nations, of course, when there are successes, sometimes those don't come out because of many reasons we want the parties to the conflict to, to have ownership over the success. And 
peace at the end of the day can be a, a non-story, whereas, of course, war um, and terrorism are, are, are very much visceral. Um, and so if we do look back historically in terms of UN peacekeeping and what has worked in the past, we could take a historical perspective. I think uh, Cambodia, El Salvador in, uh, in particular are some of the successes in what we call the golden age of peacekeeping sometimes. And what was different then from, from, from what we have now? Well, first of all, we had a united international community. So indeed, you know, the geopolitical challenges that we face today are, are an, a major issue for us. We also had limited national interest of outside actors in, in those conflicts. And we were dealing with local and national level issues for the most part. What we have now, as you so what puts so, put so well for us, um, it's, it's a very, very different conflict landscape that, that we are facing. In the Sahel, we of course have terrorism, but we also have terrorism that is linked to drug trafficking, and not only in Africa and Europe, but also across the, um, the ocean in, 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 in the Americas. So it's an incredibly com complex landscape that we're, we're dealing with. There's new enablers of conflicts and new technologies cyber and AI that are evolving rapidly, providing both opportunities but also challenges for us. And then, of course, all of these are interlinked with climate change um, in both positive and negative ways, and also interlinked with the geopolitical tensions that are precisely undermining um, what we need to address these risks. So it's, it's an incredibly difficult time. The UN, I don't have a book to show like some of the other uh, <laughs> participants yesterday, but I do want to speak about a publication that's coming out, I hope soon, um, The New Agenda for Peace um, of, of the, that the Secretary General is preparing. Um, it's being drafted precisely to help the United Nations uh, improve our, our tools in the face of these massive challenges. Um, it is envisioned that within uh, the new Agenda for Peace field-based UN peace operations would continue to be part, you know, a key part of the international security architecture, um, although perhaps with slightly different mandates, perhaps more of a regional approach, um, we, we need to be creative also in terms of how we address the, the, new, the new situations. Um, and the sort of buzzword that we use around to describe this as networked uh, multilateralism, and it's precisely building on the, the regionalization and the partnership with regional actors to take advantage um, uh, of their capacities. Uh, but of course also, and as you highlighted, very much, it's very much the case that regional actors are facing the same challenges as the United Nations, so it's not, it's not necessarily easier for the African Union or, or ECOWAS to take on the challenges that the UN cannot, cannot tackle. So in terms of um, the scope of the problem, uh, it's really Im impressive and scary, the figures that are thrown out. I mean, yesterday we, we heard also 2 billion people affected by conflict, also 3.5 billion people that live in climate change hotspots uh, today, and of course much of that overlaps. Um, and for peace and security actors, and what also came out in the workshop uh, yesterday that, that, we're, that we're holding, um, is, is the fact that peace and security actors, of course, do not hold the solution to climate change. The solution lies with environmental actors and with development actors. 
so we, we cannot pretend and do not want to pretend to hold um, those solutions. But what is a fact is that peace and security actors are impacted by climate change. So we cannot ignore the fact that this is happening either. And this is, of course, also um, why the Security Council is bringing the issue into the mandates of different UN peace operations. Um, it's also why uh, the Department of Peace Operations joined the climate security mechanism uh, at the end of 2021. This was created with DPPA, the political uh, department, UNDP and UNEP. I'm very happy that um, our first advisor ever in a UN peace operation is with us here today, uh, Mr. Johnson Kem, so he can tell you firsthand also about his work. Um, and so with that, I think I will stop abusing my authority <laughs> and ask the panelists to take the stage. Uh, so perhaps uh, Mr. Dilaur uh, Aldin, director of the Middle East Research Institute, if you could come up. In fact, I'll move myself. Um, and then Ms. Laura Omir, Europe-Asia Director for Conciliation Resources. Mr. Johnson Kem, please do come up. Senior Climate Security Advisor in the UN Mission in South Sudan. And Ms. Roswita Kremser, who is joining the United Nations uh, very soon as designated chief of the Joint Analytical Mission Center, I think I, I should say rejoining, um, in MINUSCA in Central African Republic. And she just finished her term um, as the head of the Coordination Office for Development and Cooperation of the Austrian Embassy in Kampala. So thank you, colleagues, for being here today. Um, I'd like to kick off the discussion um, with one question that I hope all of you uh, can answer um, in one way or another. Uh, and that would be to please share your insights about the impact of climate-related security risks on peace and security in the region that you're, you're working on um, and the possibilities for dialogue and mediation initiatives to address them. Delore, please, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. And uh, first, I want to thank the organizers, every one of them. Um, they've been working very hard. When things go smoothly, you know how much hard work going behind the scene. Much appreciated, and uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I come from the Middle East, uh, MENA countries, MENA region, that is uh, like the rest of the world, been uh, impacted physically by the rising sea level, by the heat stress, by the water stress, except that we are twice as much affected because our region is warming up um, with increased temperature twice as fast. And we are net contributors to emission. We have about 6% of the world population, but we are contributing just under 9% uh, to the um, climate change. Of course, um, like many other regions, um, the uh, impact is seen in many ways. Uh, so we have, like many other places, we have droughts, we have uh, aridity, we have uh, increased des desertification. Uh, our water uh, salinity is increasing at an uh, uh, unprecedented rate. Only yesterday was in the news that in Iraq, a million fish died because of that. Um, that's probably a, a regular occurrence now. And um, as a result, we have pollution, we have change in biodiversity, um, we have low um, food um, production levels, 
We have poverty, we have population movement, we have onward migration, we have urbanization at an artificial rate, um, and of course we have intra-community conflicts, we have inter-community -com conflicts arising, as well as between countries, uh, transnational and, and cross-border. So that is the MENA, so you can pick up any country you like, you'll find a lot of these patterns happening. But of course, MENA is uh, again f uh, a, a fantastic uh, region um, full of countries that range from having almost failing into being increasingly fragile into being kind of functional countries. So we have, we have the full range of full functionality of governance and rule of law. Uh, all the way to failed states, um, and they are scattered between them. So there is no one who hasn't got a neighbour that is either failing or fragile or increasingly fragile. And of course, when you deal with countries like that, um, it's wonderful to talk about policies, but actions don't follow usually. So Iraq is a very good example um, that uh, itself is an increasingly fragile country, and it's. Uh, level of dysfunctionality for a long time uh, made life worse, made the climate uh, change worse for its population with very little vision and strategy uh, to tackle it. Um, we have almost 40% of Iraq is now desert. It's not, no longer useful for agriculture when we used to be the breadbasket of the Ottoman Empire. And of course, the mean temperature has been rising at the rate of 0.4 Celsius every decade for the, fast, the past five decades, that's two degrees Celsius. Of course, the heat waves that are above 50 degrees Celsius have been increasing in frequency, so much so that um, we had a huge, wonderful lake of sour is completely dry now. Of course, our neighbors like Iran also had lakes uh, drying up, and our rainfall has decreased so much that the flow of the river is affected by um, a significant amounts, so much so that we had the ancient marshlands, the marshes of Iraq with its community that go back to millennia is now 70%, has got 70% less water in it. And of course we have the, um, uh, the, the salinity increased uh, in a place like Basra, for example, it reached a degree of like 7,000 ppm and WHO's uh, standard for uh, good drinking water is 500 as maximum, so from 500 to 7,000. Not that I understand all these PPMs, but at least it gives me the figures to say how bad it is. And that, is, that meant, as a result, we have three out of five children not having full access to good water. Now, of course, we also have confounding um, uh, pressures and drivers and, and problems that all intertwined, and this is where conflict comes in as well. So we have, uh, when I was a kid and went to school, um, Iraq's population was 8.5 million. When um, Saddam came to power as a, as a formal president of Iraq in 1979, we were 13.5 million. And uh, a few years ago, that's only three, four years ago, somebody warned us, they said, what are you going to do when you reach 40 million people? Actually, we are 43 now. 43 million, that is quadrupled in 50 years. And in the next 20 years, we are going to double again. So Iraq's population is exploding while 
the country's infrastructure is poor, the governing system is poor, strategies are non-existing, and of course we have complex and difficult neighbors. Some of them are represented here. Where is Ahmed? So essentially, um, uh, we, we are we're in the middle of this. Um, of course, we also, uh, over and above the instabilities we have, we have the ethno-sectarian conflicts, we have terrorism, and they, again, attacked our water infrastructure. They, they made it worse for us. And, of course, when it comes to um, all these poverty, tensions, and conflicts, we have tribal conflicts now arising as a result of water, water-related tribal conflicts. We have um, uh, uh, migrants uh, in urban areas living in poor conditions, becoming poor, and then easier target for recruitment by terrorist groups, by extremist groups, by militias. So, the, the, in fact, some of the militias have been accused of deliberately making them uh, water-stressed so that they can move on and then um, uh, recruit them uh, as, as a result. And, of course, we have, again, family split where women and girls are um, uh, shouldering the brunt of that because they take full responsibility of the family and, the, and everything else while the, the boys and, and the men are away. And, of course, in the global gender gap, we are third from the bottom uh, in the list of 156 countries. We are 154th. So imagine the, the uh, women's plight there. Now, what does the government do? We are very good uh, at talking about these things, uh, very little um, doing anything about it. Um, so our government has strategies that they talk about, but very little uh, a impact on the ground. But for the, last, you know, for the first time in this current government, in the last budget, we felt something. Suddenly there is budget for modernizing our agriculture, which has been traditional for, for millennia and has been wasteful. We are heavily subsidizing water, fresh water and drinking water for people, and that led to overconsumption and wastefulness. So we are, while water stressed, we are still making it almost uh, free of charge. Um, it's a lovely sound. I've missed that for, for such a long time. Um, so the Iraqi people are now not um, helping with um, water management. The Iraqi government doesn't have good policies other than upstream dams, but downstream nothing is, is actually done. And of course we, um, we have the over and above that, we have the neighbors who are diverting and, and withholding water from flowing into Iraq. And I'll come to that in the context of conflicts and, and dialogue. And of course, we, uh, we also have a good development, and that is the government of Iraq in, 19, in 2020 developed a national adaptation plan in collaboration with the UNEP, Environment Program. So there are things developing, and this current government has promised to do something about this. I take environment and water very seriously. So even if they start from today, it will take a long, long time because we have reached the point of irreversibility in many ways. I'm going to turn for the last section into um, inter-country or, or, or uh, uh, regional kind of policies. We uh, survive as Iraq um, uh, on water flow from two big rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, that's 98% of our water supply. And 70% of that used to come from Iran and Turkey, and Turkey being the main one. 
Now, that has reduced significantly um, the, to the degree that Iraqi Ministry of Water Resources uh, thinks that in 20 years' time, uh, one of the rivers, if not both, would dry up. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly it's, it's a, a real issue. Now, with the... Um, Iraq, with, with Euphrates coming straight from um, Turkey, but, uh, sorry, Dijla, uh, uh, <laughs> Tigris, coming straight from uh, Turkey, but, but Euphrates goes to Syria as well. So all these three countries and Iraq independently, separately have been building dams. So no policy, no negotiation, even though there is an agreement, there are agreements with Turkey, but actually this is now shelved for a long time. So basically, um, in, 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 the, uh, in, in, in Turkey, um, there have been negotiations, there have been discussions, but in Turkey there have been a huge development in the last several years called South, uh, Southeastern Anatolia Project, where they are building, or have already built, as, I don't know how many are, are finished, but 22 irrigation dams and 19 hydroelectric uh, plants. So basically, that meant a severe reduction of, of water flow uh, coming into Iraq. And on the Iranian side, they actually dug tunnels, dug uh, <coughs> trenches to divert and completely dry certain tributaries of uh, Tigris uh, from Iraq. And um, rainfall reduction with that uh, diverting um, uh, uh, and dam building and draining, that meant that in the future we will see these downstream as you go down south to Iraq, uh, water supply either drying up or becoming increasingly salinated, and we have retrograde flow of seawater coming upwards and killing our fish as well as livelihood and, and water uh, supply. So basically, Iraq has now complained internationally. Um, uh, funny enough, I mean, don't uh, be surprised that we say we've taken Iran to international court. So even Iran is, is, uh, is now... Uh, in conflict in terms of water. But what happens is that when you start negotiating, water is no longer water. Water is oil, is security, is politics. For instance, um, at the moment, um, Turkey decided after it lost a case in Paris in to, uh, uh, to do with oil exportation, Kurdistan oil exportation. So um, Turkey was found um, that they should they should be penalized for about a billion and a half or something. They stopped the, the, water, the, the oil export. Now, this in, a, in the Iraqi mind is immediately directly linked to water. They think that the best way of negotiating with Turkey is to say, okay, you, you have the oil, we have the water. And, but there is also a security issue. Their, their troops are, are crossing our border, occupying bits of Iraq, and they're chasing their own opposition. So essentially, you can see that to sit down with Turkey, you need to be prepared to give them what they are expecting and to take what you expect. And at the moment, there is no formal negotiation. They are not talking. They are threatening. They are uh, uh, making life difficult for each other. But actually, there is no formal uh, discussion, which we need to generate. That's where we come back to conflict, dialogue, and diplomacy. There is actually a good thing. Sometimes when you're so stressed for water and they are so stressed for energy, and there is a common global warming issue, then it is an environment, it's an incentive for, for them to sit down. Iran always um, claims and behaves as though they love the Iraqis, today's Iraqis, not yesterday's Iraqis. Yet they are diverting the water. So it's a good case to say, okay, we need you, you need us. There's a, um, a point in having a good dialogue. So basically, 
the future, we should not always look at the bleak side, which is very bleak. We should not only just think about the nightmare scenario, which we are already living in, in terms of water, but we also think about a critical threshold with, that we've already reached where we must sit down with all these countries and say, how about being good neighbors? The ones upstream of water, they see that their water is an opportunity. The one downstream, they see it as a security matter. We have been most vulnerable, not only because of the global warming, but also because of having difficult neighbors and difficult uh, downstream uh, uh, circumstances. So I'm going to stop here, and hopefully there will be other opportunities to respond to questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Delora. I really appreciated your um, well, positive stance, first of all, on, on, on the options for, for water diplomacy um, between Iran and Iraq, but also your highlighting of the importance of governance in breaking the path from climate change uh, to violent conflict. This is something that we see pretty much everywhere, um, and where there is not the governance, um, perhaps an international aid can, can play that role. Thank you. Uh, Laura, please. Thank you, and thank you to the Austrian Centre for Peace for convening this forum. It, it really is a privilege to have these conversations um, and to be part of this panel. So I'm a regional director at Conciliation Resources, and for those that don't know, CR is an international peace-building organisation with both research and practice-based expertise. And our work focuses on long-term partnership in very specific contexts um, and stretches from community peace-building support to supporting Track 1.5 dialogues. And I'm coming to this having just led an initiative bringing together regional work exploring this intersection between climate change, conflict and peace. So we've looked at our work in Kashmir, in Philippines, Pacific and Uganda as a start. Um, and try to understand how climate change is affecting our work um, from a peace-building perspective and also what the role is for peace-building and responding to this issue. And I've got three takeaways from that I'd like to share, using in particular the example from our India-Pakistan work on Kashmir. And so firstly, just to say, the interaction between climate change and conflict is complex. But we need to balance recognising that complexity with also avoiding a paralysis and addressing that. So the physical impacts of climate change are very context specific. But what's really important as well is how these interact with human and institutional factors. And I think that's come out in what um, we've heard already so far today, but also um, yesterday as well. And we found it helpful to break this down into three lenses. So governance, including the role of commercial and international actors, livelihoods and gender and social cultural norms. And it's the combination of the physical effects of climate change with these intersecting lenses that can exacerbate horizontal and vertical tensions that can drive conflict, but also on the reverse, if we understand this, if we look at how um, this combination can help reduce these tensions, can also create opportunities for peace. And I think it's really important as well that we recognise that climate change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is human influenced and therefore both responses to conflict and in fact conflict itself can also exacerbate climate change drivers. So these issues are very cyclical when we start to delve into them. And to go into um, the example of India and Pakistan, as I've, as I've mentioned, 
we've seen and, and I'm sure many um, in this room have seen as well, it's um, you know, the impact of um, climate change increasing the variability of monsoon rains, the frequency and intensity of floods, of avalanches, landslides, drought and wildfires. Air pollution is increasing and air pollution itself we know is increasing the temperature and affecting weather patterns. And again, we've got a region which the temperatures are rising higher than the average um, and there's a great risk around um, glacier melting in an area that's also a water source to a number of countries in the region. And in Kashmir in particular, the links to conflict are very apparent. Um, it's one of the most militarised areas in the world. That alone has an impact on land degradation. And that, as I said, cyclically impacts the climate change drivers. But we also see that physically landslides, which we know are increasing, um, the intensity of these um, is increasing, is shifting ground where landmines are. And that's making it harder for communities to avoid these. So we have seen incidents where that's created loss of life. But wider than those individual um, very tragic cases, it's adding to conflict narratives. It's adding to tensions between communities and a government unable to address these. If we take a livelihood lens, agriculture is becoming harder. There's less valuable um, land for agriculture and that's pushing some young farmers closer to the line of control. It's exposing them to shelling, but it's also exposing them to accusations that they've crossed the line of control and of an infiltration. We've also seen increased migration to urban areas and local governance is unable um, to really provide and is very constrained in what it can do with the lack of resources. There's decreased travel and connectivity from damaged roads and communications from the extreme weather impacts. Um, and that's not just affecting different communities, but also communications between communities and state, which can surfen and deepen grievances that are already there um, in an area which has already very high governance challenges. And then when we talk about gender dynamics, it's really important. We're not just looking at how different groups are affected, and, and they'll see they are affected very differently, but to also understand the gender and power norms that are informing the different coping strategies. Um, and we've seen that increased vulnerabilities of climate change can add further layers to complex and sometimes harmful narratives around identity. Overall, though, to kind of take this slightly wider again, we know um, in Kashmir the progress on dialogue is stilted at a national level. Where local governance structures do exist, they um, lack capacity often and coordination, and there's a disconnect between communities um, and governments. At an interstate level, both parties are feeling increased challenges over resources and livelihoods due to climate change. This puts further pressure on the interstate conflict um, and also risk that an incident could escalate. But whilst there's increasing recognition of the problem, the complexity makes it hard to deal with. From a very practical perspective, when it comes to funding, um, there's often a discussion of where does this sit? Who holds the pen on, on responding to these issues? Is it with a conflict specialist or a climate specialist? In national and local governments, there's often multiple agencies looking at these issues. There's limited coordination. Um, and in this particular example, the governance issues um, are also um, driven by a lack of inclusion as well. 
But, and this brings me to my second takeaway, and to try and focus on um, the opportunities, there are opportunities for dialogue and mediation if we understand the impacts of climate change. But these aren't a given and these do take time. So over the last few years, I've been part of a joint environmental facility, um, which is an initiative that's been set up by police builders working across India and Pakistan. And it's brought together environmental experts, business leaders and journalists um, across both countries. Um, and it's created a space for those experts to come up with a series of technical solutions. Um, and it started initially looking at technical solutions around agriculture that can be used um, to adapt to climate change and also, also help mitigate some of the most harmful impacts of agriculture on climate change. But the reason for doing this isn't just to facilitate this space, which obviously has um, a benefit in itself um, and on climate change, um, but it's been set up with a um, hope um, and a plan that's coming into place at the moment of bringing this um, into Track 1.5 dialogue. So we support a Track 1.5 dialogue for Kashmir that involves both um, policymakers from India and Pakistan, but also Kashmiris themselves. Um, and to bring this, um, the lessons from this facility um, into this dialogue um, as an example of cooperation to support greater cooperation on climate change in, in Kashmir itself um, and to understand how we can use this to try and build confidence. But I think it's really important to say that whilst um, the environment can be an opportunity within peace building and for dialogue, it's not always a positive opportunity. It's often an issue that's a very thorny issue that comes into these conversations out of necessity. If we take water management, and I really like what my esteemed colleagues um, said here, that water is no longer water in negotiations. It can be incredible, incredibly political. And there are some really good examples globally of water management cooperation, um, both at a local level, um, being used um, to build confidence between different groups. Um, on a cross-context level, um, many of you will know that um, water management platforms um, in the Middle East has been one of the few platforms for dialogue that have been able to keep going when others have become more challenging. In the case of India and Pakistan, there's a real worry at the moment about the future of the Indus Water Treaty. Water in any form of negotiation becomes incredibly political, and that's where I come back to it, it is no longer just water. It becomes very much entwined with identity, um, with livelihoods um, and with land. And part of the reason for having a, a kind of broader environmental cooperation I, I previously mentioned is to show that there is possible to have cooperation on environmental issues, um, on agriculture, um, which at the moment is um, less political, to then be able to inform these negotiations as well when it comes to water. And then my third takeaway in looking at this is that ultimately characteristics of successful attempts to bring in environmental peace building and more broadly, um, successful attempts to address climate change in conflict-affected areas are ultimately just characteristics of good peace building. Um, so we spoke um, yesterday in the plenary about the importance of working at different levels, so looking both top-down and bottom-up, the importance of linking different spaces and knowledge between them. Um, and this is something that we have seen as a, a real gap um, around um, a lack of opportunities for the kind of local experience to be shared with um, governance and policy makers um, and for that to inform each other. 
inclusion is not just about having different people at the table, but it's taking an informed approach to power and gender. It's about recognising different knowledge and expertise as valuable. And it's about ensuring all groups can participate in decision-making that affects them. And it's making sure that we don't just transplant technical solutions from elsewhere into different contexts without looking at what are the specific climate change factors in that context, but also what are the specific human and institutional factors that affect the responses to them. So there's a lot more to dig into here, but I'll leave that here and hopefully we can um, discuss further. Thank, thank you very much, Laura. Really helpful to have that broken down to whatever extent you can break down such a complex um, topic. Johnson, please. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks to the organizers for inviting me to share some of the experiences we are having in South Sudan. Uh, I mean, yesterday there was some, uh, a panelist from South Sudan who really gave the history of how the country struggled for independence and self-determination. Uh, one of the things we are observing today is that uh, more people have been killed by intercommunal conflict than was killed in the, in the liberation of the country. So that tells you that there is a serious issue of dealing with um, communal issues, and most of these are driven by climate factors. Uh, uh, from the climate science itself, the country has uh, warmed up by about 1.1 degrees to 1.5 degrees since pre-industrial period. Some of the observation we have is that you have more than 50% interannual variability in rainfall, which really disrupts the ability to function for a country where more than 95% of the population depends on land-based land issues, agriculture, and so on. Similarly, where there is rainfall, it's very erratic. So it makes it really difficult to, to plan anything. Uh, looking at the topography of South Sudan, most of the country is in the floodplains of the River Nile, those who are familiar with the River Nile. So what happened is that there's a lot of flooding that occurs. For the past four years, we've been experiencing flooding. And part of that flooding is not based to internal rainfall itself, but it's based to flows from Lake Victoria and from the hills of Ethiopia. So it's not really uh, an issue of uh, local uh, climate change, but the kind of regional dynamics of climate within that region. So the tendency to respond need two um, uh, phases. You need the national response as well as the regional dimension, because it's not possible for South Sudan to tell Uganda when to open their floodgates uh, in the Lake Victoria. So those, again, uh, create a very different uh, scenarios. Similarly, when you look at the, uh, the exposure that people have, particularly those who are living in the floodplains of the Nile, the jungle, unity, and so on, uh, it is a very uh, low-lying area, most of which is uh, below 400 meters above sea level. So the tendency is that there is continuous disruption and displacement of people by flood. Drought is on the other side uh, towards uh, the, the Sudan border, but in the lower area of the area, it's, it's predominantly flood. The difference is that one is a slow onset event, like uh, drought, and the other one is a, a, a sudden onset event. Uh, that has also changed the, the response capability of the communities. With the slow onset event like drought, there have always been uh, seasonal migration planning, 
right? Pre-migration and post-migration conferences. These are dialogue forums that help communities to come together to look into how do they ensure that there is a safe passage where um, the cattle uh, grazers can move with their livestock without necessarily interfering with uh, croplands and all of that. They sign an OMOU, it's well structured and driven by communities. And sometimes they try to enforce it using traditional means. Uh, although that again is limited because uh, most of the pastoralists are heavily armed and sometimes they push uh, to get their way through. On the other hand, where there is uh, flood, the displacement is so sudden and so um, erratic to have any kind of pre-arrangement. So it's, it creates dispersion of people without respecting any kind of uh, special arrangement. So the, one of the things we have been observing in South Sudan is that that has changed the landscape of conflict because the displacement become a protracted displacement rather than seasonal migration where people go and they come back. Because it's such a, uh, an unknown, there is uncertainty when the flood water will recede, the tendency is that the host community become very impatient that, oh, this is more of like occupation because you have stayed, some of them have stayed for about two years. They have not been able to go back home because they still flood water from where they came from. And then it's been perceived like um, uh, a strategy for land occupation or redistribution of population, especially with the coming, uh, upcoming election because the tendency is that a lot of the conflict that took place after the post-independence was structured on ethnicity. And that kind of uh, uh, configuration has also um, rippled into the element of uh, climate-related uh, drivers, like this flood, displacement, and migration. So the tendency has been quite difficult to manage because the, the, there is ease of mobilization of, for revenge, you know, to you know, cattle wrestling and the rest through ethnic. Uh, constellation, right? People act in that mind of ethnicity, which is a dangerous uh, um, configuration in the sense that it becomes very difficult to respond. Uh, but then one of the things we are doing in Udmis is that we are trying to create civil space uh, whereby we encourage dialogues uh, between communities. First, inter-communal dialogue to bring communities together to discuss and identify some of their issues and how can they uh, address those issues. The critical thing in, in that is that they, it's more or less to give them the ownership for mediation and the ownership for, for the solutions because they know the solution. Some of the things we observe when it comes to those intercommunal dialogue is that there are, they, they, they interrogate even their cultural practices uh, because if you see the element of cattle rustling is based on the, uh, the cultural uh, dowry, you know, a young man needs to maybe bring 200, uh, maybe 50 cows to be able to get married. And that alone is it's quite a burden for anyone to, uh, to raise. So they have to rustle, you know, to go still. Uh, secondly, uh, the, there are age set issues which help them to discuss because uh, it's one of those few fora uh, where you bring both the elites and also uh, leaders, uh, youth leaders, gender, everybody, 
and traditional leaders in the same room to discuss freely what are the issues. And by that, they, they look at uh, intergenerational issues which is occurring in their society. They call them asset issues, which sometimes is a constraint in the way the world is uh, for young people to sit in the same uh, room for them to dialogue on some of those uh, issues. So one of the things we do as UDMIS is that we facilitate uh, this, this uh, dialogue, but we also try to protect that it's not hijacked by political leaders. First, it's convened by the governor for sure. Uh, to give the, the legal um, framework and protection for everyone who is participating. But you, you want to ensure that there's freedom of expression as well as uh, uh, no intimidation uh, or politicizing the process. It, it works very well, but they come up with uh, some kind of uh, uh, memorandum of understanding. They, they come up with recommendation and everybody signs up to that we agree with what we have in this dialogue. That is the first stage of inter. We now have to go into intra-communal dialogue because that is the most difficult part to bring different ethnicity to sit in the same room and discuss some of these issues. It's quite challenging in the sense that there are historical differences, we know that, and also the, the tendency of uh, uh, protection is such that people prefer, they feel safe within their ethnic groups. Uh, we have observed that some of the situation uh, in some regions requires that some ethnicity have to go to the IDP camps because they are afraid uh, of being either attacked or vandalized by um, the other group. So it puts a lot of pressure on the IDP camps because when people are displaced or flee from uh, violence, and go to the IDP camps, they depend on humanitarian support. So one of the things you see in the case of South Sudan is that the climate disruption and displacement really increase the humanitarian needs of communities. And also the ability to recover because they have lost everything. The tendency is that they are sitting in uh, IDP camps waiting for food supplies to come. Even when the food supply is supposed to come, sometimes the logistical challenges during the rainy season is so terrible that it's not possible. Like now, WFP have had to front load the, the shipment of all their consignment of uh, food for the next three months, mainly because the roads are impassable. Where you want to use the Nile, like uh, river transport, there are also gangsters with several checkpoints. So it's a very, very challenging situation, which again, is not an element of uh, uh, attribution. It's really amplification of some of these issues by climate issues. We don't need any other scientific proof to show that when there is flood, people are displaced, they run into conflict, the exposure increases, conflict-related sexual violence goes up, Women have to travel in some places two hours to fetch water in South Sudan, which is under desperate situation because that's when the exposure of uh, gender-based uh, and sexual-related violence occur. So we, we don't need any other, I mean, it's so, it's so stretching even for the government to deal with. And from the uh, negotiation side, 
the, the ability for government to respond using direct um, you know, climate funding, climate finance, is limited. Right? Some of the things we experience, which is very um, unfortunate, is that conflict-affected countries can only mobilize one-third of what the other countries that are not um, affected by conflict from the Green Climate Fund or from the GEF, which oh, it's quite uh, lamentable because these are very the same country that are highly exposed and also uh, superimposed again by conflict. So they are locked in a cycle of perpetual conflict that they can't get out because even the international community sees them as very high-risk country for private sector investment or for direct uh, support from the vertical fund. So it's an issue that we have to use this opportunity to, to facilitate development in that country because uh, even in as much as Urmis is doing what they're doing to facilitate dialogues, help to mobilize people, expand the civil space, if there is no funding from climate sources, it will, will always spend more money in humanitarian support. In fact, the, the humanitarian, the, the, the investment in humanitarian uh, funding is 10 times more than what they do for, for development or even peacekeeping. So that ratio, in fact, the government is even asking that it's time we start deploying some of the funding for humanitarian to help respond to the development needs which will feed back to kind of reduce some of the, uh, the kind of uh, uh, issues they have. So let me stop there, but I'm happy to take more questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Johnson, also for highlighting uh, this issue of compounding risk, which also the IPCC, uh, the last um, assessment report, also highlighted. Um, what happens when you have both darkening security horizons as well as worsening climate change in a country, these, of course, compound each other. Roswita, I think it's your turn. Mm, I Over think to it's, you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and uh, again, just want to re-echo, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to be here. It's a fantastic uh, uh, event and uh, very rich and... Uh, I'm happy to be amongst so many high-profile also persons. Um, so the uh, question that was posed was uh, to give examples from environmental degradation or extreme weather events exacerbated by climate change negatively impacted peace and security objectives. So I had to read it actually a couple of times. <laughs> um, and then came up with uh, two uh, uh, little uh, tweaks from my side. Uh, in my uh, previous uh, life, and I just also exchanged with uh, uh, Edie from OneUp, I was uh, working in the uh, front office or cabinet of um, senior uh, UN uh, official in West African Sahel and just wanted not to re-echo what uh, um, yes, 
is has said, <laughs> but um, I uh, wanted to just say what were the efforts actually that were taken because I think you know we are re-echoing on all the problems and I think uh, as you have heard they seem to be very very similar. I'm not going to go into these again. So uh, in the Sahel, what were the uh, kind of concrete efforts that were done? First of all, um, of course, we don't have to underestimate the Mali peace process. Uh, there's a country that is a guarantor for that. Uh, we also know that. Uh, there are, you know, uh, the UN involvement in that. There's uh, uh, the regional um, organizations involvement in that. But we should not underestimate that the Mali peace process is a big um, part of solving uh, uh, the issues in the Sahel. Um, we also have, when it comes to climate change, uh, and it was mentioned, there is a pastoralism protocol. And it's something that I have learned when I came to, uh, to Africa, and I'm about 20 years now in Africa. Um, I have learned that there are, um, it is actually very normal still that cows are traversing countries and, and, and forever. I mean, there are hundreds of uh, kilometers of trails, which is totally uh, unusual in Europe. So it was something that I discovered, the pastoralism protocols, very well regulated. Uh, they exactly say how much the fees are, how much is the damage, and so on and so on. So those are really, really structured, detailed, organi uh, uh, detailed um, you know, protocols, and it's about how are they going to be enforced, and, and uh, you know, what is also the, the, the dialogue mechanisms and, and um, um, implementation of those. Then we have, uh, you know, when it comes to the uh, governmental processes and the international processes, we have all the Sahel envoys, and I think every, every uh, country that, you know, uh, thinks uh, uh, they have uh, a stake or some, something important uh, to say on the Sahel, they have really now a Sahel envoy, so there are those Sahel envoy structures. Uh, and they're, they're like regularly meeting. Um, there's also the, uh, what we have, the very innovative things for climate change, also something I discovered. What we long time have in Europe already is the connection of all the rivers and the lake structures. In Africa, it doesn't exist yet. So there was a, a, an idea, and I thought it was really, uh, I mean, quite puzzling, uh, pharaonic, uh, uh, you know, uh, a proposal to bring, uh, because of the drought of the uh, uh, Lake Chad, it was proposed to bring water from the Congo Basin to the Lake Chad uh, uh, area. And uh, uh, that would have been, you know, traversing DRC and so many other, uh, you know. But uh, so those are some of the ideas that are put on the table. Um, and uh, then, of course, there's the UN internal coordination and donor funding conferences. And I have to say that whatever comes to the Sahel crisis, it has to be peace. It has to be funding for peace. Uh, it has to be funding for humanitarian. It has to be funding for development. And they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be like uh, competing to each other. You know, it's not one euro that you put in peace is one euro less that you want to put into uh, development or humanitarian. So that's uh, also one of the initiatives. And the last initiative that I want to mention for the Sahel uh, was the very localized initiatives with the local religious and traditional leaders 
Um, personally, for example, I participated in a, a governor's conference in my Dugori, that's in the Book of Armstrong field. Uh, so those are kind of, you know, some of the concrete uh, efforts. Now, when I come to my last uh, um, uh, uh, posting, that was four years as the Austrian representative and head of the Austrian Embassy Development Corporation office in Uganda, um, uh, that was a totally new, uh, um, you know, um, um, set of situation. And it was very funny because when, when I had my farewell uh, just on Friday, I, I moved this weekend back to Austria, uh, and I had my farewell on Friday, so one of the, uh, our environmental specialists, he was like, yeah, and when I came to this office, I was like, ah, but who will I report to? I, I'm an environmental specialist, so he's a young, dynamic, upcoming, you know, uh, 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 guy from the north of Uganda. And he was like, but who would I report to? And I thought initially, when he joined our office about two years ago, I thought, but you have two. You have the governance specialist and you have the water specialist. But I was really happy to meet me, doctor. He calls me doctor. I was very, very happy to meet doctor because I met another environmental activist in this office. So he was very happy. I, uh, I was uh, actually finding myself in a position to... Uh, really find that you can do something about environment in whatever position you are. And I want to pull the, you know, the discussion back from the big you know, topics to what individually can you do? And, and where is your, uh, you know, where can you change uh, to the positive? Because I, I am uh, very convinced that every single person in whatever capacity you are, you can do something. Now, the challenges in Uganda, and they will be very different from what we have heard, because I wanted to uh, you know, go back a, a bit from this, uh, um, like, yeah, like generic um, uh, topics in conflict zones, because Uganda, of course, is a different setting. So, uh, the climate change, we have heard it. Uh, uh, there is a weather pattern. Uh, we have droughts in the north of Uganda. We have the farmer heard a conflict. And actually, again, we, I, I can confirm this, um, Uganda has faced one of the deadliest uh, conflicts between farmers and herders in a decade. And yes, we can confirm it. This is also due to um, uh, uh, you know, weather patterns. We have hunger. They were the first hunger death in Uganda uh, for a decade, also. So uh, this is really uh, this is the reality. Now then comes uh, uh, things we haven't yet heard on this panel, and uh, it goes into more controversial. So I was thinking, what is environmental degradation? And environmental degradation in uh, uh, the sub-Saharan Africa is the chuckle the chuckle for cooking, because people need to use some, some material to heat up their food. And if you have many people that need to heat up their food, because uh, the social, you know, is a social ladder is, is you know, people are climbing up, so they have more food to cook for more people, they need more chuckle, so you need to cut more trees <laughs> with more people on, uh, in the countries. Not even to do that, they actually expect it. <laughs> I heard Uganda is exporting charcoal to uh, Middle East, for example. That's what I heard. 
Now that is also funny because uh, those countries that Uganda is exporting to have banned the charcoal production <laughs> in their own country. So that's a, a little interesting tweak. Now Uganda has another issue uh, that is uh, very appreciated. Uganda is hosting 1.5 million refugees. Um, that is the largest refugee hosting country on uh, the African continent. And before the Ukraine uh, crisis, it was the third largest uh, refugee uh, hosting country worldwide. I think now it is the number five. So uh, this has put an additional strain on the chuckle because all those trees around those 1.5 million people of the refugees, they're, they're cut down. <laughs> so there are less trees, that means more vulnerability, uh, more uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, droughts because less uh, forests and so on and so on. Now, on top of this, we have serious governance issues. We have illegal logging down of entire tropical forests. Now, how does this work? Uh, you have, uh, I'm, a quote, I'm putting one example that I personally followed up, it's called the Bugoma Forest. It's uh, a forest that is important for the chimp trail, so when Uganda wants to think about its, um, its uh, uh, potential for tourism, it needs to preserve that forest, because if you don't have that forest, the chimps will not be going to be trailing. They need to you know, move long distances. You cut down that forest, yeah, the chimps will disappear. Uh, Uganda will uh, uh, prevent itself from uh, uh, you know, gaining more uh, income from tourism. So this forest was cut down. What happened? I mean, part of the forest got cut down. There was a court case uh, because uh, one of the traditional kingdoms uh, gave out a, a part of the forest. And uh, uh, this was contested in the law, in the courts of law. Now, while this contestation was ongoing, this company, with unknown relationships to some of the leaders, had actually the chance to have the army guarding that forest. So from the outside, you wouldn't know what was going on. From the inside, every single tree was cut down. And uh, we saw it because we had satellite images. It's, uh, it's uh, open sources today. <laughs> so uh, we, we knew exactly what was going on. And uh, uh, this really eroded the trust in the state institutions, as well as in the traditional and cultural institutions, because all were involved in this you know, uh, turmoil. Um, I was already talking about the population growth. Uh, this is a very unpopular topic <laughs> to talk about. It is so difficult to talk about uh, population growth. I am no longer a fan to talk about a demographic dividend because honestly, I think it is, uh, it is a wrong term uh, to use in some of those countries uh, where the population is doubling and we heard it doubling in like uh, uh, you know, 10 years or, or, or 15 years, you can't talk about population dividend anymore. You just have to see how you can manage it. And um, uh, so what is needed is uh, uh, to have more focus on what Uganda calls family planning measures. So that's basically contraceptive. The uh, socially, culturally accepted term to call it in Uganda, and I'm not comparing to any other country, is family planning. So you talk about you know, the need of family planning. And um, it is, uh, yeah, it is a bit difficult to talk about it, but 
the statistics are also very clear. The statistics in Uganda say every man and every woman that you ask, no matter you know whether it's a man or whether it's a woman, you ask how many children do you have, and they would say like I have five children or I have six children or yeah. Now when you say how many children would you want it to have? <laughs> So your first question is, how many do you have? Next question is, how many would you want to have? All of them would say one child less than they have. <laughs> so that's actually a very simple way of explaining the unmet need of family planning. So in the end, it becomes not very controversial anymore because everybody sitting across the table has, a, you know, potentially one child more than they, they would have had, uh, they would have loved to have. And, uh, uh, and, and really, that's not, that's not a criticism on big families. Um, I have to reveal I'm coming out of a family of nine children, so <laughs> uh, that is, uh, that is uh, maybe putting me in a good position to talk about uh, uh, family planning, <laughs> though all my brothers and sisters are okay off. <laughs> so um, then, um, of course, we have talked about the flooding, so I'll not talk about it. Uh, so then, uh, uh, just finishing uh, with the responses. So what was the response um, on the uh, climate change-related farmer herder conflict in the north? Uh, Uganda decided to have a security response and food supply. So that is costly. Yeah, that is costly. Um, and uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, it even uh, created tensions between Uganda and Kenya because uh, some of the pastoralists came in from um, uh, the neighboring countries or were alleged to be coming in from neighboring countries. But what is the little tweak here is that the, um, the statistics of donor funding in Uganda revealed that there is less funding coming to governance issues. There is less funding coming to governance issues. Why? People think it's very difficult, it's sensitive, you get into trouble, you have to talk about the military, you have to talk about elections, governance, the courts of law, the police, human rights, you know. So there, the statistical proof is there's less funding to governance related issues in Uganda. Um, and that is, very, uh, that is very sad in my uh, opinion. On the uh, issues of uh, the, um, uh, like the refugee host community clashes, we had, uh, and also a project where uh, we had the experts from uh, Buchleining, we had uh, some project uh, where, uh, fun uh, funded by the Austrian Development Agency on local peace mediators, and I think uh, uh, we have heard about uh, similar um, uh, discussions here, so that is very good, localized initiatives. But on the other side, there were also discussions with the government on the ban of charcoal export. Yeah, we have also to talk about such things that are very boring to talk about and, and very technical to talk about, but if you ban charcoal export or charcoal production, or if you have, you know, uh, this um, uh, change of how do you prepare your meal, that would have a huge impact on um, environmental degradation uh, reduction. 
And uh, here we have, to, we have to give also credit to some of the presidents. Uh, the president of Uganda, for example, uh, just recently had an executive order to ban uh, the transport of charcoal. Because, you know, charcoal is produced in one part of the country, then transported to another part of the country. So it gets really uh, uh, like a whole machinery uh, industry, you know, cutting down one forest after the other. Um, so that is really a good initiative on, uh, on the side of Uganda. As I said, what we did also on the illegal logging, you have to be innovative. What, is, what, what did we do? We had a, a dialogue with NGOs. We had, uh, I personally discussed with all the ministers involved, how can we save this forest? <laughs> you know, not only because I, I like chimps or I don't like chimps, but because this is Uganda's tourism potential. Tourism is the highest um, revenue creator of foreign exchange for Uganda. And those are arguments that you can put on the table. This is your dollar that you're losing. One person is making a dollar for illegal logging, but this will, uh, you know, like wipe away billions of dollars for the Ugandan economy. Those are the kind of arguments uh, that I think are, 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 are receptive, you know, to the decision makers. And of course, uh, we used high tech. We had uh, satellite imageries. I never, I never knew that we have satellite imageries on forests. Yes, we do. <laughs> and and uh, we didn't get them from, from our side. We got them from NGOs that uh, were like, you know, why can't you, like when you're meeting the Minister of uh, Tourism or Environment, huh? <laughs> just, <laughs> just push over that image. Yes, and they gave us the image and they gave us the image with, you know, the analysis of where does, how I had monthly images of the cutting down of the forest, including the analysis of what is illegal and what is within the boundaries of, of that. Uh, so that was, you know, high tech support of, and of course it wasn't in my office, I had such a, a mini office, but, you know, that's a collaboration and it was receptive because it's fact-based uh, advocacy on real things, uh, I said, like, that's, that's really brilliant. And uh, I, I, I also uh, can positively report that um, there are now discussions to turn this uh, forest into a national park. Yes, and that's great. Uh, so so we, have to, we have to find some innovative you know, approaches on, on um, uh, bringing the, the, the stakeholders around the table through all kinds of mechanisms, discussions. We have to be innovative, we have to be creative, we have to do alliances and all of this. Now on family planning, I think that's really uh, a very fantastic thing as well. The government of Uganda signed an agreement with the UN, UNFPA, who is of course the, the key expert agency on that, on family planning, national family planning. So yes, it's a taboo, but it's not a taboo anymore. That's also fantastic. I think that's the 21st century that just sometimes we have to jump over um, what we have learned and what we have talked about and you know, we find the allies. We address issues in the most appropriate way. We call it family planning. If the country calls it family planning, we call it family planning and I have no issues in that. But we have to address it in the most appropriate terms, of course. Um, and I'll finish with uh, uh, the big question about the funding. And uh, here, really, I have, I, I, I haven't, I have, I, I need to really crack my head. I, I'm totally puzzled of how this, you know, gigantic 
billions and trillions of dollars will be raised, both for peace initiative, but also for climate change adaptation and mitigation. I said some of those ideas that the continent of Africa has, they're pharaonic projects. <laughs> Where is this money coming from? Who is paying for it? Is it grants? Is it loans? And uh, then also something that, you know, we have done it for so many years, so many decades. Uh, the River Danube regulation, for example, in Vienna, you know, Vienna used to be flooded every year. <laughs> it's not flooded anymore, but not because the Danube has been becoming a different river. We regulated it. Now, the big discussion in Africa is development versus, uh, uh, you know, the natural uh, beauties that, that there are, you know. We also have to be a, a bit undogmatic, pragmatic when it comes to uh, such discussions. Uh, there has to be, of course, uh, it's uh, most fantastic to see, you know, a herd of elephants and giraffes and gnus running around your safari car. But also we have to bring those, you know, problematic uh, rivers. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you so much. I'm getting a signal from upstairs. Um, I'm not sure if that means we need to be wrapping up the panel. I thought we had until 11.15. Um, but I think, yeah, we also want to have the opportunity to have the, the audience answer some questions. I think I had envisioned that we could perhaps also have some reactions. Um, but also, oh, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> um, but I see already one question here, and maybe it's good to know how many questions there are in the audience. Two, three, uh, four. Okay, if you allow me, fellow panelists, I think we'll go directly then, then to the questions, if you allow. So I think this gentleman. Thank you. Uh, just a quick response to my friend, Dilawar, about the uh, water issue. I mean, uh, you, you, you map it up very well, uh, but uh, I mean, you have major problem in Iraq. It takes like one year to make an election, another year to f establish a government, and it takes a year to solve these problems. So they are piling up, and uh, also, uh, you know, uh, Iraq imports gas and electricity from Iran. So. They are mismanaging their resources, and Turkey is not using uh, water as a weapon. If they, if they did, they would do it against the PKK and the Assad regime, and the water goes to Syria, the Euphrates, and then goes to Iraq. So, but the main problem is more like pollution and, and other stuff. So, we are friends. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and Turkey using the water for electricity, not to divert. Not to, uh, not to punish. I mean, uh, we are using for the electricity and we are letting the water. And I drank coffee uh, next to the, uh, the Tigris, Tigris River. There is, there is water, but it is polluted, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you. Would you like to respond? Okay, can I? That's the spirit of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, thank you so much for your contributions. My I have two questions, I hope that's, that's fine. So my first question relates to the higher track conversations that were uh, proposed today. Um, what I've seen so far is that um, when it comes to water diplomacy or these very like politicized resources in interstate relations, 
that um, sometimes it feels like it has to be become that bad, the all-encompassing threat of climate change has to become so severe that people or governments in that sense um, are willing to have conversations because they are forced to have conversations. At the same time, we also hear that for less politicized issues, agriculture was mentioned, um, there are technical solutions and maybe this is a good way, an entry point to, to start negotiations or conversations at least in this regard. So I'm wondering, with these two polarities happening, like the crisis needs to be severe so people talk, and the option of technical solutions and maybe less politicized issues, I'm wondering how much of it actually happens. And uh, for the second question, I'm wondering on communal inter um, conversations and dialogue. In the context of climate adapt adaptation, we talk about um, persuading people, providing them with various forms of information so that they can make more informed decisions, change their strategies, etc. But so many things of it also are cultural dimensions, identity dimensions, and you mentioned the role of social norms. I'm wondering how much of it, of this emotional components are discussed and in what ways do you bring that in? Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question goes to the last speaker. Uh, you spoke about deforestation and I agree with you that it is a terrible thing in, and uh, it is something that happens not just in Uganda but uh, also in Nigeria. Uh, a number of forests have been lost uh, due to deforestation and uh, for firewood and charcoal, as you mentioned in the case of Uganda. Now, the problem is they have, the people who do this, they have realized that, you know, it brings them large income. Mm. Yeah. So it is difficult to stop. Secondly, there is no alternative source of energy for cooking, but that firewood or charcoal, especially in the rural areas, and not only that, but even in the urban areas, because of the cost of gas, that is in the urban areas. In the rural areas, there is no gas, but in the urban areas, there is gas and there's electricity, but electricity is erratic and it is expensive. Gas is also expensive. So the cheaper source is firewood and charcoal. Now, just recently, Nigeria banned the use of charcoal. Mm. And the question being asked is, how are people going to cook their food? Mm -hmm. You know? So it is not something, even though it has banned the use of charcoal, but it is not something that is going to stop immediately. Luckily, Nigeria is doing something about it because it is, uh, has the ninth largest deposit of gas. So it is now laying pipes all around the country. And I know it has even come into my country, but the implementation uh, has not started yet. So perhaps there is hope that in the near future, you know, gas will be available and probably it will, the cost of gas will come down and so people can afford it. But other countries are not so opportuned. Nigeria is wealthy. Uh, I think the wealthiest in, in Africa, so it can afford to do that. But other countries may have a problem to that. So I don't know if you have a suggestion that can, you know, sort of uh, prevent uh, deforestation 
or use of charcoal or whatever, so that at least our forests can be preserved. I know that um, Nigeria has now about 17 forests that it has declared protected. So I think this is a, a good move, and uh, if more can be included, that would be good, but it comes with its, its costs as well. Thank you. Thank you um, to the panel. Very simply, we haven't heard the solutions from West Africa. So if we could actually hear from, I hope I pronounced this correctly, so if we could hear from you after everything you've heard from the colleagues, there must be fantastic insights from your part of the world. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. My name is Herbert Gotts. Engaged in tourism, I just acquired this handbook on tourism and following your speech, what is the opportunity to organize travel, to organize tourism in the countries you are representing in Africa? Perhaps now we, uh, should we give the panelists a chance to respond because we have only 10 minutes left? Yes? Okay, great. Maybe we then start with uh, Mr. Eze. Um, please go ahead. I think there are basically two questions to me, uh, but I also take uh, one minute to talk about uh, a few other things. Uh, let me begin with the last one on tourism. Um, Africa is a destination for tourism, uh, but whether it is a priority for the government of Africa is a different question mm -hmm. altogether. So the idea is then how do we come to terms with what she referred to about using tourism as a source of income? You know, uh, don't forget that some of the, the bad behavior that affect the environment are actually, on one hand, coping mechanisms for citizens. So it's a survival strategy, as it were, not that uh, they wake up and decide to do that. And to your question about the solution, I think the first thing is to uh, begin to uh, have a conversation about investment in prevention, mm. either at the level of conflict or at the level of uh, climate adaptation and resilience. Especially that development partners don't see results from prevention easily. Yeah, it's unlike responding to a disaster where you will see how many people you have assisted. So the issue then is, how much more do we want to continue to invest in reactions, including the enormous investments we have made in peacekeeping missions across the globe? Uh, Africa uh, is one of them. You know, today, uh, UN is drawing down in Mali. The question is, have you healed the sick or is the sick dead? That question has not been answered. Are the issues in Mali over or is the UN giving up on Mali? and by extension, the entire Sahel region. The last thing for me is that we also begin to understand that the effect on climate change on women is also different. Because in Africa, for example, women are also the engine hub for small-scale businesses. And once that engine hub is affected, either through flood or other adverse effects like drought and so on and so forth, then that means the economy is in shambles. And yet, Investments does not target these uh, small and medium-scale businesses, which is predominantly uh, run by women. 
Thank you very much, Eze. We only have, I would say, uh, two minutes per panelist left to respond to the various questions, so if you could all um, respond accordingly. Yes, um, I, I really wanted to, to stress that my argument was a lot less on conflict and war. Why? Because my argument is to prevent. Every euro you invest in the prevention of a war saves you thousands of euros and millions of euros to uh, you know, manage and solve a war. So all those little examples that I put you on chuckle, that's not sexy, family planning is not sexy, all of these are not sexy topics. <laughs> these are every year you invest in conflict prevention will save you millions, billions in management. So that, uh, just to explain you all my you know, uh, uh, points were, were geared on that and I fully, fully, fully agree on that. So um, the, um, uh, just on the uh, how, to, how to prepare food on the continent. And it's a very tricky question, yes, and we have to uh, bring the, the information to the communities. Um, and I think the, the way to bring it to the communities is just to talk to them in their language. I, I don't think really that's rocket science. Uh, uh, there have to be, uh, first of all, the uh, uh, information in the whatever language the, uh, the community uses. And the second of all is we have to have subsidized means of uh, energy. So those subsidized means uh, can be uh, twofold. Uh, the number one is uh, uh, you need the, the uh, energy saving uh, stoves, for example. That would be the cheaper kind of alternative with less uh, distribution networks. And then, of course, you have, uh, the, you know, again, I call it pharaonic uh, processes, those, you know, gas pipelines in the entire context, maybe to prioritize, you know, some of the areas. I think that's good. Also, why not to build on solar? And on the solar, yes, we have to also make the communities aware. In some of the, uh, aware, sorry. In some of the uh, solar panels, um, uh, water piped schemes that we constructed, one scheme is, uh, is, is uh, bringing uh, water to uh, 15, 30,000 people. Children think it's shiny, it's great. They throw stones <laughs> to destroy it. Now, what's the mechanism? It can't be always nice. You also have to now punish. If you have a community awareness program, let's guard this. This is our scheme. Let's also, you know, let them pay for electricity. It will be valid. You know, we have to, uh, you know, sometimes uh, go out of the box. And yes, it is difficult to think about making a refugee pay for water. My God. <laughs> Yes, in Uganda we do that. Oh, we did that. Sorry, I'm out of Uganda now. <laughs> yes, so, um, so my, my, my uh, uh, is conflict prevention, conflict prevention, conflict prevention, and tourism is one of the ways to provide alternative livelihood. So I also see it as a, as a way to prevent and, and, and to give way to uh, the development that um, you know, all these countries deserve. Of course, I have many, Thank many you. ideas. We can do that offline. Yeah, I think... If we also yeah, thanks. There are two uh, quick reactions. The first one is tourism. Let's not forget that climate is impacting tourism. Uh, in Uganda, we have the biggest migration of antelopes, and all of them have moved because of flooding. So they've moved somewhere else. We don't know when they will return. So it's not like the tourism sector is immune to climate impacts. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the element of uh, uh, using uh, communal dialogue for the mobilization of climate actions. That's exactly what we're doing. Because the idea is that how can you tell out climate actions to, to uh, respond to some of the uh, sources of conflict between communities. 
That is really critical because when they agree to act on a water point, for example, they'll agree where should we locate the water point. So the whole process of your adaptation uh, interventions is done along the decisions of those intercommunal dialogue. Thank you very much. Thank you, Johnson. Laura, any final words? Um, just to pick up on, on two points and, and following on from that around socio-cultural norms, absolutely. And I have seen where they have been um, a kind of examination of them and coming up with alternatives. So recognising actually if you know, cattle rustling is partly around masculinities and identities, what are the alternatives for being able to achieve that in an um, in a context where it's becoming harder to earn livelihoods, um, but that is um, less negative and, um, and coming up with, with solutions. And I, I think that's what my um, colleague was um, alluding to as well. So I think that's fundamental. And then on the point around in some of these um, higher level negotiations, a very quick answer is that it's not happening as much as it should and it could be. And where it is happening, it's not happening with a long-term view we know climate change is changing and increasing. And so if we're talking about rain, if we're talking about water, let's not look at this year, let's look at the next 30 years. Thank you very much, Dilara. Right, well, <clears throat> our job is, um, as policy researchers, we always end up with policy recommendations, which is what we should be doing. And we do that. And this climate change is becoming obviously increasingly becoming uh, urgent and a priority. So we do, um, we have recently proposed uh, recommendations, but this ha issue has national, regional and international dimension. So in Iraq, for example, we have been emphasizing the need to manage water better because we have been very bad at it. And that is to do with not just educating the public and putting uh, charges on water and then um, supporting uh, modernization of irrigation and better building dams and so on. So all that ha is happening inside and we are pushing that through. But regionally, we also encourage the Iraqi government to uh, engage Iran and Turkey in a more constructive dialogue, not just blame and point fingers, just like we saw the, on the Palestinian issue, every time it's European fault. But nobody looks at them and say, what, about, what have the Arabs done for Palestine? What have the Iraqis done for Iraq? So we tend to, say, to, to encourage the Iraqi government to say engage Turkey, Iran and others more constructively and talk about the bigger issues and they're all intertwined. But for Europeans, now we're in, in Austria and, and Europe, there are things that we have to look into and encourage the Europeans to do. There are three things that the Europeans are concerned about. Why is it that they came and rescued us from ISIS? Why is it? Are they still there building capacity? Why do they care? They care about stability. Stability means less migration and refugees, less terrorism that we export very well uh, to you guys. Uh, and you're our immediate neighbor. And more importantly, we have tons of resources that we are the biggest market. Trade is now losing out. We have less trade than ever before, but we have more migrants coming from your next door neighborhood as well as terrorists. So stability is the key. To stabilize a region, you need to uh, help these regions and engage them constructively, invest in their stabilization. That is good governance, less corruption, more focus on getting the house in order. We cannot get our house in order alone. We left alone, we know how to uh, ruin it. We know how to race to the bottom. That's what we're doing. So the Europeans, 
they need to realize, more than the Americans, by the way, because we are the immediate neighbors where you get the brunt of everything. And water is usually not the first thing that comes to mind about st stability. Conflict is driven by so many things, and people always go for the oil, for the wealth, for the land, for the, but actually oil is becoming a major source of instability, and that, the immediate impact of that, the spillover of that, will be Europe. So it is in the interest of every European to think about stabilizing the region and proactively help them think about it, do something about it, because left alone, they are not doing it, and look at the way Europeans are preventatively, proactively doing certain things about climate change, we are not. So don't leave that alone, don't leave it to their own accord because they're too busy doing other things. You mentioned, Ahmed, that it took us a whole year, actually it took us a year and a half to come up with a government, let alone a policy to, do, to, to uh, run our country better. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. I feel like we've taken a fantastic voyage around the world with, with our panelists. Um, and thank you to the audience for being uh, so fantastic. I think it's time for coffee. <laughs>
Those of you who are not staying at the hotel in Schleining, please bring your luggage here tomorrow morning. There will not be any transfers after tomorrow morning between the other hotels and the conference center. You will be able to drop your luggage off here, but again, no further transfers, so please don't forget to bring your luggage with you as you check out of the hotel tomorrow morning. Also, some of you are starting a little bit earlier tomorrow. Those students joining the summer school workshops, you should be in your seminar room at 8 tomorrow morning, as that is when the seminar starts. For everyone else, we meet back here at 9 tomorrow morning for the Peace Tech Marketplace Day, where we're going to have a bazaar of various organizations and initiatives showcasing their projects and tools in the area of Peace Tech. So if you're interested at all in innovation and digitalization, Peace Tech Marketplace is the place to be tomorrow. And of course, our closing session and our raffle. If you haven't found the number on your name tag yet, please check inside. There's a number and there's a chance to win a very special artwork that the staff of the ACP have co-created with AI. So we're looking forward to that. For now, though, that is it for, from my side. Please enjoy your workshops, enjoy the book signing, enjoy our film screening, and we wish you an inspiring climate day. Thank you.